I think for me, it's um, as an athlete, it's probably important that you compete for as long as possible because when it's over, it's over. You can't come back. Welcome to the Bar Bend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbend.com. Today I'm talking to Ali Jawad, a British Paralympic powerlifter and silver medalist from the 2016 Rio Paralympic Games. Ali was born a double above the knee amputee, and he competed in judo at a high level before finding powerlifting. He's one of Britain's most accomplished strength athletes, and he's also an outspoken advocate for clean sport and doping controls in Paralympic sports. In our conversation, we talk about how Ali is blending academia and strength sports, why doping controls are more difficult in Paralympic sports, as well as the challenges he faces training with Crohn's disease. Also, we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, please be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. Thanks so much for joining us today. I have to ask, because I asked this of a lot of athletes during this time, how, was, uh, how has training been during, uh, during the pandemic for you? Um, to be very honest, really good. I, I, I think I actually smashed it, to be honest. So um, I've been quite lucky that the isolation period, I was um, consistent. It made me control all the variables. Um, and because of that, that, made, that allowed me to make you know, good decisions and um, you know, obviously making sure that I was in constant contact with the coach as well. Um, so because obviously, because when, when you control the variables, you've got a very good shot at succeeding. So coming out of lockdown, I've done, I've done pretty well. And now um, th- that, fa- that foundation has given me, I'm actually in better shape now than, than I was um, before lockdown. <laughs> I mean that's that's fantastic news and and clearly something that takes a lot of uh, a lot of effort. I think a lot of folks have have treated maybe not the elite athletes have treated lockdown as a period away from training, but uh, but not an option for you. For people who might not be familiar with your career, what body weight are you generally competing at, and what is your your competition best right now in the bench press? Yeah, so people will know me um, at fifty nine kilo plus. Um, I've, I've in, in competition, I've done one hundred ninety five kilo. Um, at 59 and um, in the gym I've actually done over 200 uh, a few times uh, but it doesn't count in the gym obviously so <laughs> but, but I have to put it out there that I have benched 200 kilo at, I was about 55 kilo body when I, when I did it um, and I've got videos to prove it so if you want to challenge me I've got loads of videos um, <laughs> yeah um, but now because of Crohn's and my health I'm, I'm back down to well I'm 54 it's been a, quite a tough time since the Rio Paralympic Games so uh, I'll be competing. Well, potentially at a lighter body weight now because of my health. But you seem like it seems like you're in good shape now. It seems like training's been going well now. What kind of training schedule have you had over the last few months? Uh, well, obviously, during lockdown, um, I've, I've converted my living room into a gym, so I managed to get a bench press in, all the weights, all the Elico plates and bars and everything. Well, you were able to get equipment, so that's that's yeah. step number one. Yeah, so I was, I was lucky that I was very well supported. Um, but, but now coming out of isolation, I'm, I'm back to, to my schedule. So I'm in the gym five times a week, um, probably average between 10 and 15 hours a week in the gym. Um, and then obviously making sure that I'm robust enough to recover from what I'm doing because uh, 
you know, it doesn't just stop in the gym. As an elite athlete, it's 24-7. Um, so you have to make sure that you're recovering and resting and making sure that your body's all right to train. What kind of, what kind of volume and, and intensity are, are you working with when you, when you go in? Yeah, so this is where it gets a little bit complicated because um, <laughs> obviously because of my health and the medication that I'm on, um, the, the side effects is you know, extreme fatigue um, and the way the medication kind of affects my, my muscle tissue and my tendons, it means that I'm more susceptible to tears uh, without even trying. Uh, so what we do now is we use RPE quite a lot. Uh, but what we do is we have an objective measure. So I use a, a, a device called Gym Aware because obviously you can't trust somebody's uh, perception because sometimes people, you know, when it comes to ego, they want to push the boundaries. So a true reflection is that we have an objective measure and we use that every session and I have to make sure that I'm in two reps in reserve every single time so I'm not going anywhere near failure so I don't hurt myself. Um, and, and what we do, we focus on speed. So if, if I'm getting if I'm getting quicker, we know we're improving. So I use a different way of, of training rather than uh, pushing the boundaries. That's interesting. And if if you don't mind, you know, give folks a little perspective on kind of what your some of the medical issues you might have to kind of navigate around with training. It's on this podcast we've talked to you know elite athletes who are who are type one diabetics, people who are working with a lot of different things that basically have to modify how they approach training. Not that they can't be elite and at that top level, but I'm very curious as to how that's impacted your athletic career. Yeah, so I, I've got Crohn's disease, um, and unfortunately with, with Crohn's. Um, not only have you got all the, 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 the side effects of uh, your symptoms, the medication itself that you take for some uh, symptoms, they're, they're, they're very toxic to the body. Um, so, that, so, right, so the medication that I'm on now, it, it makes my body um, in a catabolic environment. And you don't want that for muscle growth at all. That, that, that's, that's like a dirty word yeah, in, in the strength sports community. Yeah, so it's my job to make sure that I know my body, how I feel, and I know that the medication will try and deceive me. It, it wants me to push the boundaries. It, want to hurt, it does want to hurt me because uh, obviously in a catabolic state, you're breaking muscle tissue down just by doing nothing. So when you're training, we know there's micro tears in training. That's like a double hit for me. So for me to recover, it takes me two, three times the, the, the recovery time than somebody that's healthy. Um, so we need to be able to navigate through that and make sure that actually we're, we're using objective measures to make sure that um, we're making the right informed choice. Uh, in the past, we've tried to push the boundaries of how I used to train when I was healthy, and I broke down after eight weeks. But we're break, I, I used to break down after um, every eight weeks. So we needed a way to measure my fatigue on a daily basis, but also make sure that we're not training at very high intensities because my, my, my pecs just can't handle it anymore. Uh, my tendons are they're broken. Um, so we have to find another way. And it's, it's a way that not many strength athletes use, um, but it, it's, it's, for me, it's probably the only way to, to, get, to get there and make sure that I'm, one, kind of healthy and, two, like, not injured. Because uh, I think if I go back to the old Ali Jawad where, you know, I used to be very, very good, um, I'd break down probably every week uh, and, not, and not be able to come back from it. Well, I think you're still very, very good. You're just you're just in a, in a more refined, uh, older, older package, and and those are some some fairly significant measures as far as tempering your intensity, tra- your training intensity and, and recovery. Uh, but of course, no one can train the same way for the entirety of their athletic career. The body the body changes, recovery it simply declines with age. 
when you're in this catabolic state, state and obviously I'm not an expert on Crohn's disease and a little disclaimer on this podcast. I don't think either yeah. of us are doctors. So yeah, I've got a doctor, it's just my experience, but I'm lucky that I've got a, a world-class team around me. I've got great resources uh, where I can, I can learn as well. Um, that, that's, that's what it is. I've got a great team around me that, that helped me. What, how, how does this impact your, your nutrition and, and your nutritional timing? Um, because if the medication kind of puts you in this catabolic state, I'm, I'm curious how that might impact how you're refueling. Yeah, so obviously in a bodyweight sport, um, you need to be able to kind of make sure that your calories are sufficient enough so you've got the energy to recover. So we focus on energy availability um, because for me, being quite fatigued all the time by doing nothing, uh, it's important that I have enough energy to get through the session, recover, and do it again because that's how you get strong, right? Consistency. Um, so my nutrition's really strict. Um, and I think we know that food triggers my symptoms. So we need to make sure that everything I'm putting in my body is good for my body to not only tackle my health, and that's the foundation, because it's health first, then performance. And then after that, we focus on the performance side of it. Um, so yeah, so I weigh all my food, uh, proteins you know, really high, and I can manipulate the other macros to suit my high, higher intensity days. Um, and my kind of lesser intensity days. Um, so I'm very regimental when it comes to nutrition and making sure that I'm, I'm not covering. How long have you been in, in the sport of Paralympic powerlifting? So yeah, I'm, I'm 31 now. So I started when I was 16. So I'm quite, yeah. You started, yeah, you started really young. Yeah, so three, yeah, so three Paralympic Games later, I'm still here some, uh, somehow. And, you know, this is a sport where we've seen athletes have quite a bit of longevity if they, if they take care of themselves. Do you have... a a goal in mind? Like, do you have a set number of like, I want to compete in this many Paralympic games or I want to have a career that's this long? Uh, I think, I think for me, it's, um, as an athlete, it's probably important that you compete for as long as possible. Cause when it's over, it's over. You can't come back. It's very hard to make a comeback after you've retired. Especially in strength sports, especially yeah. in strength sports. Exactly. So I think f- for me, I, I want to, as long as my health, um, holds out, um, I'm hoping that I can get to as many as I can. Um, and then after that, I'll decide whether or not, you know, if I'm competitive enough to carry on. I think for me, it's all about being competitive um, because like the heights that you reach sometimes, you always compare yourself. I don't want to get to the games and come you know, 10th or 11th. Um, I want to be able to be, you know, fighting for, you know, some sort of medal. Um, so if I can't get to that sort of level, then I'll probably, yeah, I'll probably um, walk away. How has the sport changed, if at all, over your, you know, now 15-year career? I think for me, you're getting... Um, so when I first started, it was it was considered a, an old person sport because it takes a lot of time to get really strong. And you never had juniors that were truly world-class against the senior guys. And then I was lucky enough at, at you know, at 19 as a junior benching 190. So I, I used to be able to compete against these top guys. Um, I think now you're getting a lot of juniors now challenging the, the, the big seniors. Um, and, and I think now it's not really a old person sport anymore. For me, you're, you're getting people from 19 all the way to probably 25, 26 who are absolutely incredible. Uh, and actually, the senior guys are struggling to keep up. But I'm struggling to keep up now. <laughs> um, but also as well, it's the opportunities we've been given in terms of competing. We've got loads of World Cup events every year. So you get to test yourself against the very, very best in the world on a consistent basis, where when I was younger, it was probably the major championships 
that you look for. But now every, every competition is quite important. Well, how many times a year are, pandemic notwithstanding, uh, you know, how many times a year are you aiming to compete? One thing I've heard is uh, folks as they get further along in their careers and as they get more elite will will compete less often. That's not always the case. I don't want to just make a blanket statement. Some people just love competing. Uh, but you know, what kind of competition frequency and, and peaking cycle frequency are you really focused on? Well, everything's about the Paralympic Games, right? Um, and that's every four years. But for, for us, the World Championships are as important, uh, probably harder to win because then sheer numbers. Then you've got the regional championships. So for us, the European championships. And then you've got the Commonwealth Games for us, which is quite important. Um, I always say to juniors, compete as much as you can because then experiences are great for you. Uh, and then obviously when you get to you know, the very, very top levels, when you have to look after yourself a little bit more, then probably focus on the majors and use the World Cup events just to try try a few things that you've not tried before because uh, you can afford to do that. So for me, for example, being so injury-prone and sick all the time, I re- for now, I rarely compete. <laughs> um, so yeah, so for me, it's, it's, it depends. But for, for me, I, um, when you get older, you, you do compete less, in, in my experience anyway. So that's an insight into, into how your career on the platform has evolved over the last 15 years. But I know you're very much busy in, in parts of the sport and in aspects of, of sporting, I guess we could say, off the platform. Let's talk about some of those things that you're really passionate about and throw a lot of effort behind, even outside of competing yourself. Yeah, so outside of um, competing, I'm quite vocal on a lot of topics in the sport. Um, so for my kind of... I'm currently studying a PhD in anti-doping and Paralympic sport. Um, I, I've, I've always felt that there's a huge gap between um, anti-doping at the Paralympic Games and the, the, the Olympics, and I want to bridge it. Uh, there's a few gaps where I want to address and hopefully lead to policy change in the future. Um, and also, you know, sit on the UK Anti-Doping Athlete Commission, so I've got a, you know, a big voice to represent people in the UK. Um, but also, at the same time, I'm quite passionate about, you know, recreation exercise with disability. So I'm currently in well, developing a platform um, that could transform the way disabled people access exercise, um, which we launched next year. So, yeah, so I've been kind of very busy during lockdown trying to um, kind of create that and making sure that's, you know, that's um, kind of ongoing for now. But, yeah, the, the PhD is the big one for me because I think that could be to huge policy changes in the future or it would definitely make the system think about how anti-doping is 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 governed at the world level what are some of those policy what are some policy changes that you could see yourself advocating for at the international level when it comes to anti-doping i think i think uh, a few things so um in paralympic sport there's more ways to potentially there's more ways to cheat so we're not talking about just substance doping we're talking about um, intentional misrepresentation of somebody's disability. Uh, so over-exaggerating your, your disability to get into a favourable class. So, you know, increasing your mental chances. I feel that should be in the anti-doping code, the, the, the WAD anti-doping code, as a, as a violation, as an anti-doping violation. Um, and also there's a method called boosting. So spinal cord athletes should be very familiar with boosting. Um, it, it's definitely concerning because it does put the athlete health at risk, but it also increases their performance. Um, I'd want that as a banned method like blood doping into the code because I feel like that would be a massive deterrent. And if that can't happen, um, I feel like potentially there should be an integrity organisation that um, 
manages the dimensions of doping rather than just a substance regulator like WADA that you know that, that only deals with substances. I feel integrity is a has a big issue in sport now, and I think sport should move with the times. Um, it's not about just doping anymore; it's about all the other methods of cheating, and that cheating comes under integrity. So that's what I'm looking into. Well, I mean, we've seen that with in the world of cycling, as an example, Equ- equipment um, not being a, a, a level playing field, people hiding hiding motors in in wheels and in, in road bikes. I mean, it gets pretty complex technologically. You mentioned boosting as a, as a, a potential method of performance enhancement that you would consider outside the, the realm of, of what should be allowed in sport. What is boosting for those who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, so sp- spinal cord athletes will be familiar with this. Um, basically, um, there's an element of self-harm to increase your blood pressure, um, and that gives you a performance benefit, um, simply. Um, unfortunately, um, that, that, that there's a performance benefit in middle distance, more well, middle distance wheelchair races, for example, uh, and wheelchair rugby. Um, however, the, the, the side effects of that is, it, you know, you can get headaches, see, like seizures and, um, it, it's really, really like bad for, for, for your health as well. So it actually ticks a lot of the, the criteria to be involved in the water code. So it is against the spirit of sport. It is a performance benefit, and it's definitely against the athlete's you know health. So there's a risk there. Uh, but right now, it's not it's not in the code. Um, and uh, it, for me, I, I see it as like you know blood boost, you know, blood boosting, right? Blood doping. It's, it's pretty much a similar method, just a different way. What um, what me- what methods are athletes? What athletes use um, for boosting? Is it is it is it chemical? Is it is it physical? What's the actual mechanism? No, no, it's physical. It's physical only. So. Um, you know, sometimes it could, it's like it's like you could, sometimes you kind of self harm. Sometimes um, you can get like because you can't feel it, so you so you can like yeah, so you can't feel it. So you can literally, you know, if you can't feel it and you're hurting yourself, that you that, be, that yeah, that, right, it that. creates a neurological reaction to, to increase your blood pressure. So an athlete in in a, in, a, in a limb or a part of the body where they don't have sensation, it could be them stabbing, cutting, pricking. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it's um. It's not a method that's uh, it's just yes. Yeah, it's, it's a method that in Paralympic sport, um, there's a potential prevalence, potential. There's potential there to 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 to, to cheat, and um, I feel like it needs to be addressed way more. Uh, there's only been a handful of studies ever, and it's, so I think for me that it needs to be looked at again to, to protect to protect athletes. So we don't we don't have any idea of the of the prevalence of that. And you talk about uh, you talk about how it's dangerous to the athlete. I mean, it is quite literally self harm. There are other things that could occur. Infections could occur as a result of these sorts of things. Do we have any idea how prevalent boosting might be at the Paralympic level? No. So I think um, there's a number of I think twenty four percent in one study potentially twenty four percent twenty three percent. Um, but no athletes ever tested positive ever for that method ever. Um, and I think that's why it's not in the code. There's no data to back it up. Um, well, we know that, you know, water only catch one or 2% a year, but we know that the prevalence of doping in sport in general is between what, 15 to 30%, right? We, you know, that's the prevalent studies out there at the moment. So, you know, just because nobody's ever tested positive, it doesn't mean it's not there. We just have to, we just have to keep looking into it and, and making sure that, the systems robust enough. Um, I do feel sorry for the you know the Paralympic Games because it's really hard to test for it, um, 
and I think it has to be done on t- intelligence as well. And it ha- and you have to test for it ten minutes before they compete. You know, imagine testing for it, you know, before you compete, and it's it's not, you know, the, the protocols need to be looked at again. But I do have sympathy with the system because it's really hard to to, to test. It's certainly a unique challenge presented by by Paralympic sport. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Are there any other? You're working on your 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 PhD in in doping in Paralympic sport. Are there any existing active PhDs in doping in Paralympic sport, or will you be the f- potentially the first? Uh, no, there's, there's, there's been there's been quite a lot um, looking at the classification system, how it works, um, looking at also the different forms of um, potential cheating in, in the Paralympic Games. But this one is going to be, I'm hoping, the most athlete-led data we've ever had at that top level uh, when it comes to prevalence. Um, and hoping then that sort of data might educate the system about actually we might have a problem and we need to tackle it in this way because athletes want to explore how we can actually make it better for them um, in terms of protecting them. So I'm hoping we get a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, policy, well, a, a, re- a rethink of, of how it's done. And obviously these things take time. You don't, you oh, don't, yes. it's going to take, it's going to take years. <laughs> you, you don't, you don't go into a, you don't start a PhD if you, if you have a short attention span, because that takes years, but actually enacting policy change at this level. I mean, we're talking potentially several Paralympic cycles here that this could yeah. take. Yes. Evidence-based. I think it's going to take two or three cycles, which could be, you know, eight to 12 years. Um, Cause I, you have to make sure the data is reliable. And then can we actually create, further studies down the line as that as a foundation. Um, there's, a, there's a lot to think about with studies. So, yeah, it's going to take years. Um, and to be honest, I actually feel sorry for, for you know, the organisations that decide how they're going to implement it because, like, I'm looking at the research and thinking, oh, it's, it's really difficult to implement a strategy here to, to do it. So I've got total sympathy with the system, but also we need to make sure that athletes are safe and protected. So this is something that you clearly, with that time frame in mind, you're looking at being heavily involved in this and an advocate for this potentially beyond your athletic career. Yeah, for me, like, um, ideally, I would like to work in elite sport um, on, the, on the governance side, especially with integrity and anti-doping in the future. Um, you know, for, for me, I'd, I'd love to work for the IPC eventually. Uh, I think they do great work. I think, you know, the, the way it's grown over the last, well, especially in, in, in my lifetime, has been incredible. Um, and without the Paralympic Games, I, I wouldn't be the person that, that I am. Um, but at the same time, we need to make sure that you know athletes are are protected too. Um, and I think I think for me, like you know, we're going out going about it the right way, looking looking at evidence based uh, structures to to inform our decisions. Who are some athletes? I want to change change it a, a little bit. I really appreciate that explanation. But let's uh, another line of questioning that might be a little bit more more fun for uh, for some people. Not that this isn't fun and interesting. Uh, who are some people in strength athletics? It could be in the sport of Paralympic powerlifting. Could be a different Paralympic sport, uh, or it could be. Well, let's keep it to strength athletics. Who in strength athletics do you really admire these days? Could be you're in your own sport or or, or another. So for me, um, Sharif Osman, I think for me. Um, he's a name, he's, he's a name, you're not the first person to say that uh, when I talk about admired, admired strength athletes. <laughs> only because, so, I, so obviously when I saw him first compete in 2008 in Beijing and I, for the first time ever, a lightweight man, and, I, and what, what I say about lightweight, anybody under 60 kilo, um, he, benched, he benched 200 kilo that night. 
And I, I was 19, my first games. I saw it and I could not believe how incredible this guy was. I never thought in my lifetime I was ever going to compete against him. Uh, but now me and him have become, well, not rivals, we're more like, you know, mates. Um, but I've had to, I've had, it's unfortunate I've had to compete against the greatest ever because I would have won more gold medals. Um, so, yeah, so for me, he's, he's probably the greatest ever in terms of, you know, what I've seen on the bench press. And we're talking about able-bodied and disabled. Um, I think pound for pound, he's probably the best ever across the board. You know, he's definitely up there when it comes to any mathematical formula used in bench press ever. I, I've been fortunate enough to to talk with Sharif uh, once. It was sort of at the beginning, kind of 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 COVID. We had a short interview and profile uh, of him on on Barbend, and he, first off, he's a super nice guy. He's, no, I can't hate him. So so unfair. It's he's got charisma. He's got charisma coming out of his gills, right? Um, and he's still like he's still the best. He's been the best for a long time, and he's still at that tippy top level. We're talking. 12, 16 years later. Yeah, he's been on beating at the Paralympic Games, um, which is incredible because uh, the standard we compete at, it's very hard to be unbeaten for that long. Um, so for him to be unbeaten since 2007 is, is ridiculous. Um, the, the, the thing is now is he has got kind of younger guys coming up against him now that are, that are kind of pushing that 200 kilo boundary. So he needs to be at his very best now to, to win it where before he'd win it with his first lift and start strutting his stuff and on platform just dancing and I'm just looking at him thinking oh I just can't, I just can't compete <laughs> I just can't compete I want to go home <laughs> where do you where do you think the sport will it could be and we've always talked about anti-doping efforts you would like to see implemented but where do you think the sport has some room to evolve potentially grow and that could be for the procedures of the sport how it's contested or potentially certain uh communities groups countries that you think are very much up and coming i think i think for me um they've so i think for me para power things have definitely done incredible work the last probably you know, two two cycles in terms of developing the sport at in lesser nations because we've got the you know, we've got a lot of people competing now. Um, the the challenges for them now is to make it a spectator sport, a true spectator sport, because we know it's a subjective sport. We know that sometimes referees don't agree with each other, and the, the sometimes the, the the audience doesn't understand what's going on. Why is it a red light? Um, I think that for me is a big challenge. How can we, you know? sell our sport, make it even bigger on a global level. Um, because if you look at the, the, the IPF rules, they're a little bit more, they're not as strict and you get, and you get more lifts in um, on percentage, like more when it comes to percentage. Where when it comes to the Paralympic Games, it is really, really strict. It's really hard to get a lift. And I don't think that's really good for spectators when they're there to watch big lifts and they don't really understand. So we need to make sure that even though there's a colour system in place now, so you know what you've done wrong, there needs to be a way where we can really, you know, um, make it grow on a on a public level. Because um, as, as athletes, we know what we've done wrong, but when you're watching it and you don't really know, you're like, oh, what's, what's happened? Um, but yeah, I think well, we're lucky that you know. I think it's good that we've got a color system in place, um, but I think we need to do a little bit more to to really grow it. It's something that I've talked to. I've talked to able-bodied powerlifters about. Uh, and, and look, strength athletes are great about complaining about judging. It doesn't. It doesn't yeah, yeah, matter yeah. who you are. Yeah. I'm, I'm like number one. By the way, <laughs> it's 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 just something. It's it could be weightlifting, para powerlifting, could be CrossFit. Everyone everyone can find something to complain about with judging. So this is not to to attack judges because they have a tough they have a very tough job, right? And there's a lot that goes into it. But I've talked to some able bodied 
powerlifters who complain about, you know, oh, the, the standard was too strict. I don't know why I got red lighted for that lift. I was like, look, try doing this to, to Paralympic standards on the bench uh, press. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't mind the strictness, just the consistency of that strictness. That's all it is. It's just like, you want us to be here, fine. But we also want you to be here. As, as athletes, we want referees to referee at the same level every bodyweight class. We don't want to have one bodyweight class which is strict and the other one which is quite lenient. Um, so we don't mind the strictness because I think powerlift, well, bench press is about optimal technique with strength because that, that, that makes it a, a more even playing field rather than just ask somebody that's you know, you know, brute strength it. But we need to make sure that the referees are you know, consistently implementing strictness and not kind of holding back on some, on some classes. And, and historically, unfortunately, you know, referees got varying opinions and, that, and that's why it's subjective and that, that needs to potentially, you know, it needs to get a little bit better. But they've, gone, they've, they've been better, for, you know, for me, since probably London 2012, they've been a lot better. They've been a lot better. Well, where's the best place for folks to keep up to date with the work you're doing? Could be on the platform competing. It could be the efforts you're building, researching, even away from the competition floor. You can just uh, look, follow my social media. So on Instagram, I'm Ali Jawad Powerlifter. And on Twitter, I'm Ali Jawad 12. Um, and on Twitter, it's more like anti-doping related, where on my Instagram page, you get to see some training, um, my love of sport in general. So I'm a massive Liverpool FC fan. So I'm quite happy right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, you get to see, um, yeah, you get to see a different side of me on different platforms. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Fantastic to hear about the work you're doing and, and specifically the research you are in, in many ways spearheading because I think it's something that we, um, that side of anti-doping efforts is something that we haven't been able to explore on the podcast before. So really appreciate your time. No, thank you very much. I appreciate it. 